Psalm 18. Before we read, let us pray. Our Father, as we open your word, we know that this is given to us as your people in order that we might know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that this is your God-breathed word. We pray that we may trust it fully and may love the flawless word that you have given us and trust in it in Jesus Christ with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So bless as the word is read and, and as it is proclaimed this evening. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to begin by reading uh, at the beginning of the psalm and then uh, going down to verse 20. So the first three verses and then going to verse 20. The Lord is my rock and my fortress. Psalm 18 to the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. O God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Then go down to verse 20. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless? He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. He goes on to describe further victories and help that the Lord gave. And then he concludes as we go down to verse 46. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, 
You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Please look at verse 25 once again. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Simply by looking at the numbers, you can tell that Psalm 18 is a very long psalm. Only Psalms 89 and 119 are longer. And that in itself suggests its importance in the first book of Psalms. You may recall that the Psalms are actually divided into five collections called books. And the first one goes from Psalm 1 through 41. And right in the middle of that section, standing very tall, is Psalm 18. And that probably gives us some sense of its weight and of its importance in the middle of this book. The words of Psalm 18 are almost identical to the words of 2 Samuel chapter 22. And even the heading is very similar. We don't often pay attention to these headings, but we should, because they give a context in the setting, quite often give clues to it. The heading is quite long. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, he said. And then we have the psalm. And this becomes the lens through which we need to view the entire psalm. David is looking back over all that God has done through him and in his life, and he begins to think about God himself and all the perfections that he has revealed in David's life through all his ways of working with David. He has shown his perfection. Now, Psalm 18 has so many verses in it and so much in it that we could spend several sermons on it. But I want to show how everything here leads to and flows from the center and high point of the psalm as David sings in praise of God's surprising perfections. The congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we need to look at this evening through the lens of this psalm. The praise of God's surprising perfections. And we'll see, first of all, the setting for David's song of praise. We need to look at that setting. What is the setting for David's psalm of praise? Secondly, we will look and focus especially on David's joyous testimony to God's perfections. That's, that's the heart of it. David is giving a testimony to the perfections of God himself. And then we need to see, lastly, thirdly, how David's testimony becomes our testimony. So with that in mind, consider God's uh, in praise of God's surprising perfections. The setting for this song of praise is, first of all, David's experience of deliverance. And we see that at the beginning of the song. David has spent time in rugged, rocky, mountainous places. For many years, he had been pursued by his own father-in-law, Saul, 
who was aiming to kill him at the first chance he got. And at that time, he was hiding in the wilderness, in the desert of En Gedi, where there were many rocky crags and caves where you could easily hide. It's in the southern part of Judah, heading towards the Dead Sea. And uh, it's a very rocky, mountainous, and rugged place to be. And in that rocky place, there were lots of places to hide, but it was also a place where God had delivered David over and over. And you can read about these deliverances in the, in the book of First and Second Samuel, and uh, we won't take time for that right now, First Samuel in, in particular. So he thinks about the rocks of that area and reflects on them and thinks of God. And he says, therefore, in verses 2 and 3, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. Now, the word fortress may remind you of Masada, which we read about in history, a fortress that was built by Herod near the Dead Sea. And when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, many of the Jews fled to Masada for refuge. It was a high, rocky place. They felt they would be safe there. Well, they were surrounded and finally starved out, so it wasn't so good in the end. But we can imagine that such places, and it was certainly viewed as a place of safety, and uh, even though they were besieged there, David knows that God is his rock and his fortress where he takes refuge. And then David begins to praise God intensely in verses 5 through 20. David knew he was in trouble. So verses 5 and 6, for example, describe the trouble that he's in in poetic language. He, uses, he speaks of the cords of death there. And he, uh, he pictures him caught in a net. David is near death, and he often was when he was running to escape from Saul. And in that situation, and many other situations, David cried to the Lord. He sends up his distress signal, and he says, God heard it. My cry to him reached his ears. Verse 6. And isn't this the very thing that we so often need and do? When you're in trouble, you want somebody to come and help. If you're stuck in the snow along the road, you're glad to have a cell phone so you can call for help. If you feel some kind of pain, you cry for help. When you live in an oppressive regime, think of the war zone in Ukraine, you cry out for food and medicine and water, and the leaders cry out for weapons. Even when David's distress was so deep, he said, my cry to him reached his ears. We know God hears the cries of his people when they turn to him. And so then David goes on to describe in very vivid language, and I'd love to spend more time on this, uh, but you can look at it in verses 8 through 16. He describes God's appearance in, in words that make you think of his coming at Mount Sinai uh, long before when he had given the Ten Commandments. And this appearance of God is often called an, a theophany, an appearance of God where he reveals himself. And here he reveals his awesome majesty. And this is what David is, is thinking about when he begins to take action on behalf of his people. You can't avoid dealing with God. God is described here as covered by dark clouds that literally seem to hang down with his glory. Look at verse 10, uh, for example. 
He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. Here we think of God in a way on a throne chariot, something like the description in Ezekiel chapter 1. Lightning and thunderbolts resound as God speaks from heaven. He shoots his arrows and scatters his, uh, his, his enemies. Verse 15. We put together, I put together a few words described in the uh, lively translation, the New Living Translation, which I don't normally read, but sometimes it's helpful to read this this way. Smoke poured from his nostrils. Fierce flames leaped from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. The Lord thundered from heaven. He shot his arrows and scattered his enemies. Does this sound like the sweet hour of prayer? It's about prayer, isn't it? David's cries reached God. But when God begins to take action, it may be less than sweet, though prayer is, of course, very sweet. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Verse 17. And so David continues his description of God's powerful saving action when, he, when we go down to the end of the latter part of the, of the chapter, verses 30 through 45. We don't have time for that right now, but he continues to describe the powerful saving action in that latter part of the psalm. But now we need to turn to the high point, this testimony that he gives to the perfections of God. And here we're going to look at verses 21 through 30, and especially getting down to 25 and 26. The first thing that stands out is the faithfulness of David. We might be surprised by that. He does get to the faithfulness of God, but he sees the faithfulness of David in connection with the faithfulness of God. David is personally committed to God. He sees God as righteous and clean, verse 20. And he even dares to say that he is being rewarded for having clean hands and for keeping the ways of the Lord and not turning to evil. Listen to what he says. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. Is David bragging? Is he self-righteous? Michael Wilcock puts the question this way. Is this little Jack Horner saying, what a good boy am I? The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. Can David really say that with a straight face after his famous sin with Bathsheba and a few other things. The answer we know from New Testament perspective is that David is righteous by grace through faith. He can honestly say he is righteous because God's grace is operating in him. To deny that would be to deny the work of God. His sins are forgiven. He is renewed. His heart is right with God. and He genuinely seeks the faith of God because God has worked with him and brought him around so that he can honestly say that God has dealt with him according to his righteousness. David is righteous because of God's electing love. He rescued me, verse 19 says, he rescued me because he delighted in me. We are chosen because of God's everlasting love for us, not because we've earned it. So the evidence of grace is David's righteousness. That's the evidence of grace. 
he can't honestly deny the work of God's grace in his life. God in grace rewards those who faithfully serve him and can therefore be labeled as the righteous. We should, we should understand this correctly. David was faithful. That's only because God was faithful. And that's where we turn next to see the faithfulness of God. The climax of the psalm, I think, is found in these verses where we see how David clearly sets forth his observations of the character of God and his typical dealings with us humans. Verses 25 and 26. Let me read it again. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. These are God's perfections that David, that have been impressed upon David. If David is faithful and righteous by grace, it's all because of God's perfections, God's perfect ways with him. God is so faithful and just and righteous that you can count on his perfect actions. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. These are the people God has worked in, and he deals with them in those ways. If you are a genuine follower of God, you don't have to worry that he's going to pull the rug out from under you. He is faithful. He is blameless. He is pure. People of God, remember this when you face a huge disappointment or when you face some unexpected setback or when you face what looks like a major loss for the cause of God and of His glorious kingdom. Remember that. God is faithful, blameless, and pure to those are the people he has made, the merciful, the blameless, and the purified. But part of God's character, according to David here, is revealed in the opposite case. What if a person is crooked? That's here too. And we almost expect a parallel, don't we? To the crooked, you show yourself crooked. How could that be? God is not a crook, is he? We'd never say that. And that's where David surprises us, and maybe even he was surprised at God's revelation of this to himself as he wrote it. Our ESV translates it, to the crooked you make yourself seem tortuous. The NIV uses the word shrewd. But what does tortuous mean? Be sure you notice, it's not torture us. God is not torturing people. Uh, he's not torturous. He's tortuous, which means twisting, winding. I believe the emphasis is this, or the direction that we need to think is this. Do you think you can outwit God? There's not a chance of it. Can you act like you are among the righteous lovers of God? And get away with it if you're not. Never. God is far more shrewd than that. 
or more tortuous. If you think you've figured out a winding path or you've created some kind of a maze so that you can skirt the purpose of God and hide and, and go your way without God noticing, He knows exactly where you are as you make that maze in your life or think you are. He's always one step ahead of you and He knows your intentions long before you do and you won't get by with it. To the crooked, He makes Himself seem tortuous. What are some examples? Think about Jacob. If anybody was crooked, his very name is deceiver, isn't it? Jacob means deceiver. If anybody was crooked or deceiving or perverse, and we would say shrewd, it was Jacob. And he knew firsthand how shrewd God is. Think about how Jacob stole the birthright from his brother. Yes, God wanted him to have the birthright. That's where his father Isaac was in error. But even when he thought he would get by with this, he didn't. God was a perfect match for Jacob. Now, that doesn't mean God was dishonest. But God often goes along with certain things, it looks like. So what about Jacob is trying to trick Laban, which is dishonest. So he brings mandrakes out so that the spotted and speckled sheep and goats will multiply quicker than the plain ones so that he'll get more. Now, did the mandrakes make any difference? I don't think so. It's weird. But did God let him have all those animals? Yes, and then he made them multiply. Somehow, God was doing that. What about Balaam? Balaam wants to curse the covenant people of God. He, he's, got to get a, he's going to get money for it. He's going to get rich if he only does this. So he asks God, can I curse your people? No, of course not. God isn't going to let that happen. But he goes back a second time and says, can I curse you? Can I curse your people? And God finally says, well, you can go there, but you have to say only what I, can, what I give you. And every time he opens his mouth, a blessing falls out instead of a curse. In fact, on the way there, he thinks he's got it now. He, 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 he got talked God into it. So he's on the way, and he's riding his donkey, and the donkey squeezes his leg. He finally falls down. He beats the donkey, and the donkey, donkey starts talking to the crooked. I can't stand Balaam. To the crooked, you make yourself seem, God makes himself seem tortuous. God was extremely shrewd in a good sense with wicked prophet Balaam. And what about David himself? Hadn't he found this out? That you can't try smart maneuvers on God and get by with it. David thought he could cover up his sin with Bathsheba by luring her husband to come home from army duty and spend a night with her. Did it work? No. God was far ahead of David. And he's far ahead of you and me, too. And he is far ahead of the movers and shakers of this world who think they can oppose God's will and run his church into the ground. They will never, ever succeed. Because to the crooked, you make yourself seem 
tortuous. God is very shrewd with those who think they have all the power. It's also true, though, and here's a wonderful thing. We find out how tortuous is his great kindness and love to his own people. Look at verse 27. You save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. And the humble people aren't those who think they're humble and brag about it. They're just the simple, ordinary people who trust in God. And they love God. They trust in the Savior. And he saves them. He brings down the haughty who are against them. In fact, David knows that his salvation is completely from this God. And he is utterly dependent on God's help. Verse 28, it is you who light my lamp. God had not let David's lamp go out in death, but had delivered him time and again from Saul and from other enemies. God's help had been given all along. Look at verse 29. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. Had David run up against Saul's troops or Philistines? Has he run up against Philistines? Yes, and God had helped. Did David act like he was going to help the Philistines in a war against the Israelites? But then God was ahead of him there. And God leads somehow King Achish to say, no, you're not fighting with us. The, the generals don't like it. So he goes back. He comes to Ziklag, which had been a city he had captured, and he finds it's been burned. He goes back. And so God has been leading all along. And thankfully, David did not end up in a war fighting against his own people over whom he was going to be the king and from whom would come the Savior. To the crooked, he makes his way seem tortuous. Was the city of Jerusalem an impregnable fortress at that time? Yes. But David goes up through the water channel and gets into the city and takes it and conquers it, makes it his capital, builds the temple there or his son does. David scales it with the help of God. He scales a wall. And he sums all this up in verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. The NIV says the Lord's word is flawless. You'll never find a single flaw in the living God. God's typical way is revealed in what he says. The word of the Lord is flawless or proves true. And that is still true. There has never been a flaw in anything that God has said or done. Whether it is his written word, whether it is all his actions, there is not a speck, not a flaw in it. Does he take the side of the oppressed and the suffering? Yes. Does he notice the weak? Does he notice the minority? Does he notice the victim of ethnic cleansing? Does he notice the persecuted church? Yes, he does. His word is flawless. So then how does David's testimony, this wonderful testimony to God, his way is perfect. His way is, he's merciful, he's blameless, he's pure and tortuous. How does this become our testimony? Well, we see, first of all, that David's testimony is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God had promised David that he would build a house for him. There would be a lasting dynasty that would finally lead to Jesus Christ, 
the son of Mary. And so after all of David's victories over all his enemies, he writes 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18, whichever was first. And then God shows that his promises will never be forgotten. Verse 50 of our psalm, God shows steadfast love to his anointed and to his offspring forever, his descendants. And that wording is significant. The greatest descendant, of course, of David is Christ Jesus, our Savior. Romans 1, 6 and 7 speaks of, of that the great seed of David. Notice how Paul uses verse 49 in Romans 15, 8 and 9. He sees the fulfillment of this psalm in Jesus. This is what Paul says. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And here's the quote from verse 49. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. No wonder David could you be sure that this kingdom would never end. And so he says, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. The real rock for the Christian is Jesus Christ. You can sing this about this rock, knowing who the rock is, as we know even more than David would have known. He ever lives. He is exalted in heaven, having ascended on high. He is seated at God's right hand and rules all things. And because Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 18, we have hope that our future will be secure too. If David knew that a descendant of his would reign forever, we can count on his faithfulness as well. And that allows us to adopt David's testimony as our own. Edmund Clowney was one of my teachers. He said the real singer of the Psalms is Jesus. Think of that. Who is the real singer? Of course, Jesus went to the synagogue. What did they sing? Psalms. He literally sang this. The human authors, in a way, get to sing along with Jesus. And of course, the setting of the various Psalms did cover the experiences of the human authors. And yet we're allowed to sing too. So maybe we sing with David Maybe David and Jesus sing, that sounds like a duet, but if we sing with them, is it a trio? Or maybe it's a massive choir, the whole church of Jesus Christ with Jesus as the lead singer. We get to sing along with him in this. And that's partly how we make this testimony ours. We sing it because it's true of us. We have the same Jesus. The God that David knew so well is still living and still delivers in our own experiences as well. You see this when he answers prayer during difficult struggles and trials in our lives. If we'll see it, his answers are still just as dramatic. He still hears his people cry to him. This God is still living and still rewards the righteous, those who truly seek him, Hebrews 11:6. God requires that we come to him by faith and he will be found by us. So this God is still living still acts in specific ways for you and me. He saw you in need of salvation and saved you. He saw your sorrow and comforted you. He saw your struggle with sin 
and came close to you to make you strong. He saw that painful break in your life and provided a shelter for your soul. This God is still living and still keeps His promises in Christ. Jesus is great David's greater Son, the very Son of God who delivers and saves all God's glorious attributes belong to Christ. His way is perfect. Christ's way is pure. And Christ's way seems tortuous at times. And He still answers prayers in our lives. He regularly gives us work and food and protection. Has He delivered you from a difficult situation? Have you noticed His answer when you weren't sure you could handle another baby? Or when you weren't sure how to take care of a discipline issue with one of your kids? Or when you faced enormous financial burdens? Have you noticed His mercy when you're disappointed in yourself for falling into the same old sin over and over? Have you noticed how He provides deliverance from bondage? In short, if God's Word is flawless, have you noticed that you can count on every single promise in it? And that you can believe every word written in the Bible? So now we have to ask, have I spontaneously offered up to God the praise that He deserves, that this psalm extols? That's more than singing a hymn with gusto. That's a good idea, though, but it's not just that. It means it's a wholehearted commitment to the cause of Christ and His kingdom. It means having eyes open to some surprises, noticing that God is way ahead of you, both in setting things straight that you made crooked or in pouring out His surprising goodness even when you don't deserve an ounce of it. These are God's surprising perfections. People of God, those perfections are given to you, displayed before you in Jesus. So let David's exuberance inspire your own praise. And let it come naturally as God moves you to thankful and joyous praise. And that praise is not forced. So I'll close this way. In the 1930s, when Joseph Stalin was in power in the Soviet Union, there was a standing ovation at the mention of Stalin's name. In those days, the problem was how to end the ovation. Who would ever dare to be the first to quit clapping or quit cheering? Because if you did, you could be in trouble. And so on one occasion, there was an old man there who couldn't remain on his feet any longer. And he finally sat down. He took down his name, and he was arrested the next day. Is that going to happen to you? Because this praise springs from the heart that has been touched by our faithful God. That's why with the merciful, we've been made merciful. So God shows himself merciful. If we've been made blameless, he shows himself blameless. If we've been purified, he shows himself pure. And if we're crooked, even then, he makes himself seem tortuous. The good news is that God doesn't have to coerce our praise. He inspires it. He creates it in us by His mighty deeds through great David's greater Son. So you can't help praising God for revealing His tortuous, surprising ways at every turn. Let us pray.
We thank you, O Lord, for that marvelous word that you give us here in Psalm 18. We thank you for your perfections, which are often surprising to us because our eyes aren't open and our hearts are a bit clogged. We don't think clearly, but you remind us in these amazing words of David that your ways are far beyond what we could ever imagine. And you often surprise us. You have given us your dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great son of David. Help us trust him. Help us follow him. Help us genuinely and sincerely respond to his mercy and his grace, to his perfection and purity, and his shrewdness, your shrewdness in Jesus. We pray this in the name of Christ.